You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. There are some musicians that leave an enduring legacy through long and storied careers, like the Rolling Stones, who formed in 1962 and swear that 2018 will be their final year touring, for real this time. There are actors who are iconic because they've been on our TVs or our silver screens for decades, like Sean Connery, James Earl Jones, or our beloved Betty White. But by the same token, there are musicians, actors, and even TV shows that are like a stone dropped in a pond. Their appearance was brief, but their ripples continue to this day. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If a music journalist wanted to compliment a guitar player, they would do it by likening the guitarist to Jimi Hendrix. That practice continues to this day, even though Hendrix only recorded his own albums from 1967 to 1970. Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix, later changed by his father to James Marshall on November 27, 1942 in Seattle, Washington. He had a difficult childhood, sometimes living in the care of relatives or friends. He and his brothers were estranged from their mother, who had Jimmy at age 17 and died at age 33. Music became a sanctuary for Hendrix. He was a fan of blues and rock and roll, and with his father's encouragement, taught himself to play guitar. When Hendrix was 16, his father bought him his first acoustic guitar, and next year, his first electric guitar a right-handed Supro Ozark that Jimmy had to flip upside down to play as he was left-handed. Shortly thereafter, he began performing with his band, The Rocking Kings. In 1959, he dropped out of high school and worked odd jobs while continuing to follow his music. Two years later, he joined the Army, practicing guitar while training as a paratrooper. Though one assumes not at the exact same time. Hendrix would eventually injure himself in a parachute jump and be honorably discharged in 1962. After leaving the Army, Hendrix began working under the name Jimmy James as a session musician, playing backup for such greats as Little Richard, B.B. King, and Sam Cooke, and the Isley Brothers. In 1965, he formed his own group called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, which played gigs around New York City's Greenwich Village. In mid-1966, Hendrix met Chaz Chandler, bass player for the British rock group The Animals, who signed an agreement to become his manager. Chandler convinced Hendrix to go to London, even as British bands were seeing huge success in the States. There he joined forces with bassist Noel Redding and drummer Mitch Mitchell to form the Jimi Hendrix Experience. While performing in England, Hendrix built up quite a following among the country's rock royalty, 
with The Beatles, The Rolling Stones, The Who, and Eric Clapton all becoming great admirers of his work. High praise indeed. One critic for the British music magazine Melody Maker said that he had, quote, great stage presence and looked as if he were playing with no hands at all. In addition to carefully crafted skill, Hendrix had a style so unique that chords have been named after him, which you can hear in Foxy Lady. He combined the rhythm style of funk with single note riffs like you hear in Voodoo Child, the use of open strings, and a number of technical things I'm not qualified to understand, let alone explain. He was also gifted with hands large enough to allow him to wrap his thumb around the top of the neck of the guitar to do bass notes while his other fingers played chords. All those things combined have made it nigh impossible to excel him. The Jimi Hendrix Experience's first single, Hey Joe, was an instant smash in Britain when it was released in 1967, and was soon followed by such hits as Purple Haze and The Wind Cries Mary. On tour to support his first album, Are You Experienced?, Hendrix delighted audiences with his outrageous guitar-playing skills and innovative experimental sound. In June 1967, he also won over American music fans with his stunning performance at the Monterey Pop Festival. That's the one that ended with the iconic image of Hendrix lighting his guitar on fire. Quickly becoming a rock superstar, later that year Hendrix scored again with his second album, Bold as Love. His final album, as part of the Jimi Hendrix experience, Electric Ladyland, which featured the hit All Along the Watchtower, written by Bob Dylan, had cover art of 19 lounging naked women, which, according to Hendrix, was entirely the decision of the label, Track Records. The experience split up the following year. 1969 was also the year in which Hendrix performed at another legendary music event, the Woodstock Festival the last performer to appear in the Three Day Plus Festival. He opened his set with a rock rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner that amazed the crowds and demonstrated his considerable talents. Bonus fact of a small-scale nature. My mother was a radio DJ in New York in 1969, but her station didn't send anyone to Woodstock when they heard about it because they didn't think it would amount to much. Too late we grow smart. Hendrix set up his own recording studio, Electric Lady, in which he worked with different performers to try to put out new songs and sounds. In late 1969, he put together a new group, Band of Gypsies, with his army buddies Billy Cox and drummer Buddy Miles. The band never really took off, and Hendrix began working on a new album tentatively called First Rays of the New Rising Sun. Sadly, Hendrix would not live to complete the project. On September 18, 1970, Jimi Hendrix died in London from drug-related complications at the age of 27. You can hear more about the significance of his age and my gripe with his paramedics in our very first episode, Shenanigans. Fair warning, audio quality was a little rough in the beginning. I mentioned the tendency to compare guitarists to Jimi Hendrix, but here's a thought. Who did they compare Jimi Hendrix to? I'll pose that question on our social media later this week. Look for it on facebook.com slash yourbrainonfacts, instagram.com slash yourbrainonfacts, 
or our new Twitter handle, twitter.com slash brainonfactspod. Remember, if you are already following slash Moxie Labouche, you're good to go. One of the music styles that played a part in shaping Jimi Hendrix was blues, a genre that saw another career whose influence and legend greatly exceeded its length, that of Robert Johnson. Johnson was a Delta blues man whose virtuosity is virtually unrivaled. He developed his slide style by watching local legends like Sun House and Charlie Patton, but was most influenced by local blues man Ike Zinnemann, whose music was sadly never recorded. Born Robert Spencer around 1911 in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, he adopted the last name of his birth father, whom he'd never met when he was a teenager. As a child, he learned to play the harmonica and the jaw harp, though it would be many years before he learned the guitar. At age 18, he married, and at 19, lost his wife in childbirth. It was that summer that Robert, suffering a valid and severe case of the blues, first heard Sun House play. Robert was deeply affected by the great Mississippi blues man and started following him and his partner, Willie Brown, everywhere. When the bluesmen took breaks during their performances, Robert would invite himself on stage for brief and, by all accounts, mediocre at best performances. Hoping to begin a career of his own, he left for southern Mississippi, where he played juke joints and parties. When Johnson next ran into Son and Willie, the bluesmen were astounded at the progress he had made on the guitar. He had developed an incredible talent and unique sound so quickly that it was rumored Johnson had sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads. Yeah, he's that guy. Johnson fueled the rumors with the song Crossroad Blues, and his popularity in Mississippi began to take off. Record salesman Ernie Ordle hooked Johnson up with producer and record exec Don Law, who recorded five sessions with him, three in a San Antonio hotel room in November 1936, and two the following June in a Dallas office building. Johnson received a few hundred dollars for the 29 sides he recorded, a substantial amount for a black man in Mississippi during the Depression. He became something of a star in his home state and traveled constantly, playing anywhere he could. He was playing a juke joint in Mississippi in the summer of 1938 when he suddenly fell ill, dying a few days later. It's believed, but not proven, that he was poisoned by his lover's boyfriend. Robert Johnson has come to be one of the most celebrated bluesmen in history, though it would take 30 years before his music reached a broad audience. In 1961, Columbia released the first compilation of his music, King of the Delta Blues Singers, with a second volume to follow in 1970. Johnson's impact on blues, folk, country, and rock is virtually immeasurable, influencing the likes of Led Zeppelin, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones. His story of selling his soul to the devil became immediately entrenched in the blues specifically, and musicianship in general, showing up in such movies as Oh Brother Where Art Thou and TV shows like Metalocalypse. Thankfully, I don't need to sell my soul for good reviews, though there's only one more to be read after this one. Nate in Tahoe writes, Okay, this woman has moxie. 
With delightful entertainment, a charming delivery, and very thorough research, this podcast is simply one of the best. It promises to leave a smile on your face and impart some knowledge you did not know. Whether it's war history or ancient burial practices, she has it all. Question, how does a woman who does burlesque manage to apply her talents to human knowledge? I'm going to interpret that to mean that you think burlesque dancers are superhuman, and bless your heart for it. Each review helps increase the likelihood that people searching for fact or trivia podcasts will find us, whether through Apple Podcasts or another app. Many apps allow you to swipe up to leave a review or to share it on social media, which would also be greatly appreciated. Speaking of gratitude, I'm sincerely grateful to one reliable source of practical and emotional support, other podcasters. This week, I'm joined by Dan from the Based on a True Story podcast to tell us more about the career and life cut tragically short, who set the standard by which a certain genre of film would be made and measured. That genre is kung fu movies, and that man is Bruce Lee. Hello. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and I'm the host of Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares some of your favorite Hollywood movies with the true stories in history that they depict. Recently, I had the pleasure of researching Bruce Lee's life as we looked into the historical accuracy of the 2016 film Birth of the Dragon, for Based on a True Story. So, let's take a few minutes to get an overview of Bruce's life. Bruce Lee was born Lee Jun Fan on November 27, 1940, in San Francisco, California. But he didn't stay there long. When he was just three months old, his family returned to Hong Kong. Bruce's dad was a famous opera singer and actor, and he was touring in the U.S. when Bruce was born. As World War II broke out, Bruce's parents made what must have been a very tough decision to return home to Hong Kong instead of staying in the U.S., far away from the conflict at the time. Growing up, young Bruce learned about more than just the martial arts skills that you know about him today. For example, before he started getting serious about Kung Fu, he started taking dancing lessons. And by the time 1958 rolled around, he was so good that he became the cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. Throughout all of this, Bruce Lee was consistently learning martial arts, and he started taking it more seriously. It was about this time that he trained under the famous Wing Chun master, Ip Man. But Bruce wasn't only dancing in the streets of Hong Kong. He found himself getting into a lot of trouble, too. And it would seem trouble for Bruce in Hong Kong meant street fighting. A lot of street fighting. And with some dangerous people, including what many believe to be the son of a member in the triad, in April of 1959, fearing the worst, Bruce's parents made another tough decision. This time, it was to send an 18-year-old Bruce to stay with his aunt in San Francisco. He didn't stay there long, though, and soon moved up to Seattle, where he decided to go back to school. It was here at the University of Washington in 1961 that Bruce met Linda Emery, the woman that he would go on to marry in 1964. I'm Jane Perlez. Longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed. From AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories, it helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. It was about this time that Bruce Lee had his famous fight with Wong Jackman. There's a lot of controversy around that fight that we don't really have time to get into here. But if you want to learn more about that, uh, that's something that I covered on my show when we looked at the historical accuracy of the 2016 film called Birth of the Dragon. In 1967, Bruce named a style of martial arts that he came up with that was heavily based off Wing Chun. Bruce's style, which he called Jeet Kune Do, is something that's still practiced by many today. Speaking of today, most people today know Bruce for one reason, his acting career. A lot of people don't really know this, but Bruce Lee was actually a movie star long before he moved to the U.S., Thanks to his dad's occupation as both an opera singer and an actor, he starred in his first movie as an infant in 1941's Golden Gate Girl. By the time he moved to the U.S. in 1959, Bruce had racked up acting credits in 19 different movies, and his stardom only grew once he came to the U.S. Not many Hollywood producers wanted to cast Bruce, a Chinese man, in a lead role, though. Even though producers didn't want to cast him, That didn't stop Hollywood elite like Steve McQueen and Chuck Norris from hiring Bruce to teach them Kung Fu. His big breakthrough came when Bruce starred in The Green Hornet on TV in 1966 and 1967, which included a few crossover episodes on TV's Batman with Adam West, by the way. Bruce started the 1970s starring in another TV series, Longstreet, but then it was in his next movie, 1972's Fist of Fury, that he accidentally hit one of the young extras on set when choreography of a fight went wrong. Fortunately, it wasn't anything major, but it was something that the young Jackie Chan would laugh off in the moment and a story he'd never forget. As for Bruce, it was his last two movies that really started to cement his stardom. 1972's The Way of the Dragon followed by 1973's Enter the Dragon. Sadly, Enter the Dragon would be his last movie. By the time May of 1973 rolled around, the movie had been shot and Bruce was working on ADR, or Automated Dialogue Replacement. That's where they dub voiceover recorded in the studio with the dialogue that was recorded on set. So he was in the studio recording dialogue for Enter the Dragon when he started seizing and collapsed. 
Bruce was rushed to the hospital in Hong Kong where he was recording the lines. At the hospital, doctors determined he had cerebral edema. That's too much fluid in some of the cellular spaces of the brain. But the doctors were able to reduce the swelling that had caused him to collapse and he was sent home. Things seemed to be all right for a while. Then, on July 20th, 1973, Bruce met with a producer named Raymond Chow, who was going to be working with Bruce to create a new film called Game of Death. After lunch, Raymond and Bruce worked together for a few hours until they went to another actor's home, a woman named Betty Ting Pai. The three worked through the afternoon until Raymond had to leave for a dinner meeting at about 7.30 p.m. Bruce said he had a headache, so instead of going with Raymond, Betty gave him an aspirin and he decided to take a nap. He'd meet up with Raymond at the dinner meeting later. Bruce never made the meeting. Neither Betty or Raymond, who had returned from his dinner meeting after Bruce didn't show up, neither of them could wake Bruce up. And they called an ambulance. Bruce Lee was pronounced dead on July 30th, 1973, at the age of 32. Thank you, Dan. For a full analysis on the factual accuracy of your favorite movies, which is not nearly as dry as I just made it sound, check out basedonatruestorypodcast.com. A few episodes back, I asked my gentle listener for their opinion on how I might best monetize the podcast without diminishing the listener's experience. Everyone who responded kindly said they don't mind hearing ads or calls to action because they know that those help the show. I've opted to go the Patreon route for a few reasons. This lets those who are willing to support the show financially, be it for even $2 a month, do so directly without having to pay for a product or service so that a small portion trickles down. Also, by not taking on a sponsor, I won't be beholden to anyone for input on my content, nor do I run the risk of using a third-party ad sales company, which could pepper the show with ads for companies I don't have faith in. If you would be willing to turn your appreciation of the show into a small financial bolster, you can do so at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. Check out the different tiers for the special goodies you'll receive. Every little bit helps defray the costs involved with creating and publishing the podcast. Take three walls, add three cameras, and one laugh track, and you've got a sitcom. Beginning as recurring sketches on The Jackie Gleason Show, The Honeymooners beat I Love Lucy to the launch of the sitcom as we know it by a narrow ten days. The single season of the show which began in the fall of 1951, was about a pair of urban working-class couples, the Cramdens and the Nortons, who go through everyday troubles and zany adventures. Ralph Cramden, played by Jackie Gleason, was a boisterous, short-tempered, heavy-set bus driver, constantly frustrated with the world and easily seduced by get-rich-quick schemes, in which he would always involve his best friend, sanitation worker Ed Norton, played by Art Carney. Ed was a simple but lovable guy, and always loyal to Ralph. Whenever the two men got out of control in their scheming, their wives, Alice, played by Audrey Meadows, and Trixie, played by Joyce Randolph, were always there to bring their husbands' inflated egos back down to earth. We didn't see much of the soft-spoken Trixie, but Alice Cramden, 
was a strong-willed, sarcastic woman who was about 110% done with Ralph's shenanigans. Though it only ran for one season, the show continued in syndication, almost non-stop, and internationally, being particularly popular in Canada, Australia, Poland, Norway, and Sweden. It also inspired international remakes, with versions being produced in Canada, Indonesia, Sweden, the Netherlands, and Poland. The Honeymooners was also the first show to portray an American family in less-than-idyllic conditions. In fact, the Cramden's simple small apartment was so bare, fans of the show would mail Alice Cramden curtains and knickknacks to try to brighten the place up. The drabness of the apartment was a deliberate choice on Gleason's part, as it was based on the Bedford-Stuyvesant tenement he was born into. Though it sounds bad out of context, Ralph's hollow threat to his wife, one of these days, Alice, bang, zoom, right to the moon, and his appreciative, baby, you're the greatest, would be quoted in entertainment and conversation for decades to come. As Ralph was a New York City bus driver, one of the service depots in Brooklyn was renamed the Jackie Gleason Bus Depot, and a statue of Ralph Cramden stands at the 8th Avenue entrance to the Port Authority bus terminal. Art Carney's character of Ed Norton created the archetype of the wacky neighbor, which carries on through modern viewing, the most Norton-like example being Kramer on Seinfeld. Ralph, Ed, Alice, and Trixie would become something of a blueprint for sitcom couples, though some shows did less than others to disguise the similarities. There's no denying that Hanna-Barbera's The Flintstones, which ran from 1960 to 66, was, shall we say, heavily influenced by the Honeymooners. The primetime cartoon series focused on two couples who were neighbors. The main characters were a heavyset man and his long-suffering, nasal-voiced wife who could be counted on to deflate his dreams of getting rich quick. Fred Flintstone and his best friend-slash-neighbor, Barney Rubble, were both members of the same lodge, on the Flintstones, the Water Buffaloes, and on the Honeymooners, the Raccoons, as well as being on the same bowling team. This suspect level of similarity did not escape Gleason's notice, and he reportedly considered suing Hanna-Barbera, but he decided against legal action when a friend told him, Do you want to go down in history as the man who killed Fred Flintstone? You can also see these character archetypes clearly in The Simpsons, Family Guy, and live-action shows like The King of Queens. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But I'll leave you with a pair of Honeymooners bonus facts. The original actress to play Alice, Pert Kelton, had to leave the Jackie Gleason show due to heart problems and was unable to return because of McCarthy-era blacklisting. Her replacement, Audrey Meadows, was the only member of the cast to get residuals from the show airing in syndication. Her brothers went with her to sign her contract and insisted that that clause be added. They were both lawyers. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Today's episode was brought to you by the word leak. Leak. Do you 
love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.